to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. We're in this series on First Peter, and uh, although Sunday morning today there was a guest speaker, and so that was sort of a departure from the series, and so that meant that I had kind of the choice tonight whether to do a standalone talk or to continue in our series, and I've chosen to continue in our series and to just try to take the next couple verses in um, the letter as we've been studying. We kind of finished up chapter 3 last week, and here we are beginning chapter 4, but just a little bit of an a overview of this letter and, um, and kind of some of the themes and the tone of it. Peter's writing to churches that are in, as one commentary put it, in the backwoods of the Roman empires. They're sort of churches that are scattered to kind of some places that maybe have the potential of them being overlooked where they are. Three times early in the letter, Peter addresses them as strangers. And he's using this phrase, strangers, exiles, your people that are living uh, as, as if you are foreigners where you are. And he's not saying that because of primarily their ethnicity or anything like that. In fact, the, most of these congregations were Gentile congregations, which if you're a little bit familiar with kind of the New Testament um, roles, you, you, you think of Paul as the guy who went to the Gentiles and Peter as the guy who went to the Jews. But here you have Peter addressing some Gentile congregations, maybe trying to show Paul that he can do it too. And uh, I, I don't know. And, and, um, when, but when we leave Peter's story in the book of Acts, there's about a 15-year gap before uh, his martyrdom, according to where tradition places his martyrdom. And, uh, and so there's a possibility that Peter could have visited these congregations. We don't know for sure. Uh, and, and nothing in the letter sort of gives us that indication. But he's picking up on a theme that's a very familiar theme for the people of God, particularly for uh, uh, J- the Jews, and that is the theme of exile, of living um, as the people of God in a place that is not home, that's not where God's will is completely done or where his kingdom is fully expressed. And so if you think about Israel's story, they really, the bulk of their history was spent in such a situation. Uh, think of the two massive stories that shape the Old Testament. The first is the story of the Hebrews, the Jews, living in Egypt as slaves, right? And then being rescued, the great exodus out of Egypt. But the story, they, they know that story uh, as people sort of living, having to deal with all of the complexities and the contradictions of Egypt, and yet to sort of live out as the people of God in Egypt. But think about the, 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 the uh, complexity of this, because in Egypt you have Joseph being blessed and being elevated and being sort of Pharaoh's right-hand man, and yet later you have Pharaoh being confronted by Moses saying, you're a wicked ruler and you need to let the people of God go. Well, which is it? When we're living among, uh, amongst non-believers in a culture that's secular, which is it? Are we supposed to be the people that rise to the top and influence like Joseph? Or are we supposed to be the people like Moses that confronts and challenges and rebukes the power brokers of our culture? Which is it? Hmm... Perhaps it's both. And then later, the other great story that shapes much of the Old Testament is the story of exile. And you may know this, but shortly after David's son, Solomon, is king, Israel splits into two 
parts, two halves in, in a way. Israel, the northern kingdom with ten tribes. Judah, the southern kingdom with two tribes. And Judah gets taken away into exile by the Babylonians, roughly 586 B.C. And so, so much of their history was spent, again, living in a place that represented the anti-God world. The world that was sort of against and organized independently of and against God. And yet again, in exile, you see Daniel on the one hand saying, no, we're not going to bow our knee and we're not going to do this. And yet Daniel being blessed and sort of being counselor to a king who's a a pagan king. And then you see at the same time the, the language of the prophets where they say things like, I think it's Isaiah that says, hey, look, I'm going to use Cyrus as my servant to release the exiles to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. I'm going to use, in other words, a wicked king. I'm going to use him to do all of this stuff. And yet, the very next few chapters, Isaiah says, oh, but by the way, I'm going to judge Babylon. But wait a second. Are you going to use them or are you going to judge them? Both. So Peter picks up on this theme because in this letter, he's saying, look, your life is forced to intersect with a a world, a culture, a stream of life that is contrary to the things that you have believed. We talked about this when we talked last week about uh, submission and and Peter's writing them about household codes. Uh, You're familiar with some of these passages because you've read Ephesians 5 and maybe you've read some of the other places where Paul gives instructions about here's how you live as believers and you ought to you know listen to to your you know this is how the children listen to parents and all of this stuff and we're, we're familiar with that but Peter's is a bit different because everything that Peter's saying whether it's instructions about what to do with government in in first Peter 2 or whether it's instructions about how slaves and masters are to respond in first Peter 3 or whether it's husbands and wives everything that Peter's concerned about is not just How do you live as Christians, but how do you live as Christians when your life, your way of life, is forced to intersect with the world? Now, that's nothing we can relate to, right? I mean, bummer that we're just going to have to study this letter academically for information because, gee, that's nothing like our world. Oh, wait. This letter is, of course, of extreme importance because 1 Peter is, in essence, a study in counter-cultural living. And how in some ways we can be the people that rise to be in in positions of influence. And yet how in the same moment we are to be people that live against the grain of culture. And that in some ways confront it, challenge it, subvert it. And this is the the tension that we wrestle with. And, and, And you know this. In your workplace you think, okay, wait a second. Am I supposed to... um. You know, listen to what my boss says and be a good employee, sure. But am I also supposed to then meet my quota for sales, even if it means depersonalizing the people that come into my office? Uh, probably not. And you, you know these tensions. These are familiar tensions. I want to be a good employee. I want to do this well. I want to work hard. I want to be a model citizen. I want to do all. But wait a second. There's some things here that I don't really subscribe subscribe to. There's some things here that I really want to flow against the grain of. And so each week as we've talked about certain things, we need to see that through that lens. Well, this week in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, he's talking about what to do or what kind of mindset to have when there's suffering, when there's difficulty, when there's hardship. Of course, that is a theme, though, 
that goes throughout his letter. But before we open the text and, and, and look at that, um, this is one of my favorite times of the year. I mean, I just, I love it. I'm so grateful for uh, a team who's you know, sort of, you know, Lisa and Karen and others who kind of ran with it to decorate the lobby and put out some fall candles and some little foliage. Did you enjoy that in the lobby? I mean, wasn't that great? And um, I love it. I mean, I just sort of, I, I came down from praying with the team and I thought, wow, it just feels, I just feel like fall. You know, I love fall. Um, but I, I also know coming around the corner is winter. And, uh, and for a lot of you, you, you love this because it's skiing season or snowboarding season. And for me, it's another season where I'll have to explain to someone why I don't go skiing <laughs> and how it is that I have lived in Colorado for 10 years and yet have not mastered this skill. Uh, for me, uh, it was probably 15 years ago when uh, I first, someone first took me on the slopes with the vain hope of converting me. And, uh, and this guy was, was a, he had legendary um, credentials. I mean, he was sort of the ski uh, master. I mean, he, he was the guy that he, look, I've taught my kids, and he's got like these seven-year-old boys that are zipping down the mountain. He's like, I've taught my boys to do it. I'll teach you. No problem, Glenn. You know, I start out on the bunnies. I'm doing the greens. And, and he's convinced that he's going to have me skiing by the end of the day. Instead, all I have done at the end of the day is snowplowed my way down a few times to the point where my legs are shaking. They're burning so much. You've been there? So I took a break from that. That was before, prior to moving here. And then after I moved here, my good friend Aaron Stern said, okay, Glenn, we're going to teach you how to do this. We're going to go again. Except that Aaron Stern's method of teaching was to take me to peak nine at Breckenridge and say, good luck. Now, if you know Breck, if I recall, peak nine required two, two lifts. I'm not embarrassed to tell you that by the time we got halfway down, I took the lift down. It's amazing. There's so few people who take the lift back down. I don't know. It was just re- really easy to get on. And, and my skiing experience has been not so good. But really, I have, I have one fatal problem when it comes to learning how to ski, and that is I don't want to give in to the mountain. I, you have to give in to the mountain. At some point, you've got to say, Okay, here we go. And then you sort of, you go with it, right? You let the, in, the angle of the incline sort of take over and push you down, pull you down. And I don't want that. I, I, I would like to be in charge of the pace, you know? But the only way to be in charge of the pace is to do this, you know? And then you get cramps and stuff. And really my, my issue is, I, I confess, is one of control. I don't like to be out of control. I don't want to give in to the surroundings of the situation. I want to be in charge of it. If I'm not in control of it, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. But perhaps that's true for us in so many things, isn't it? That really what's difficult about life is, is not, yes, it's the circumstances, and yes, it's the challenges that we face, and yes, it is the hardships. But sometimes I, I think maybe what makes the hardships so hard is that it reminds us we're not in control. That what makes the experience that much more difficult, yes, it's difficult in and of itself, but what makes it maybe more difficult is because it reminds us that we're not in control of this. That, oh my gosh, we're flying down a mountain and we can't stop this ride. What are we going to do? I think of 
the moments when I, I get irritated or I get angry. And, and you know, I think counselors might suggest that anger is like this warning sign that, hey, you're not in control. And that oftentimes when we get our, our angriest sometimes, it's because we're reacting to the feeling of, hey, I couldn't make you do what I wanted you to do. Oh, I, I, that was not how I wanted it to be. And, and anger is really a way to say, beep, 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 beep. This is a moment to embrace the fact that you're not in control. Another thing that does that, I think, maybe is fear. You know, the moments that we're most afraid oftentimes are moments it's triggered by the feeling of being out of control. Now, our text tonight is an interesting one and um, can be problematic. And I'll explain it to you as we read it. 1 Peter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body... Arm yourself also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desire, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, I think it's this verse that, that over the years has produced some distortions within the church where we've sort of said, oh, well, maybe then if I uh, embrace suffering, then that will sort of... Um, Make, it, make me come to the place where I'm totally done with sin. And so maybe it's the kind of way, way, way skewed approach of like, well, maybe I'll inflict suffering so that I can be done. I'll, you know, I'll do the, the beating thing, and once I beat myself, then I'll get to the place where, wait a second, I am now, I have now beat myself enough times that I am done with sin. Could, is that what Peter is saying? Is Peter saying that, look, if you've suffered in your body, then look, you can reach a definitive moment in your life where you can say, I was done with sin. I am now done with sin. Is it true that you can maybe come to the place where you can be having a conversation with another believer and you, instead of saying, when did you get saved, you can say, hey, when did you get done with sin? Oh, well, that happened to me in 2005, November. It was just a wonderful moment. I've been done with sin ever since. Is this what Peter is saying? Probably not. <laughs> from what, all the things that we know from the rest of Scripture, we know that there is this, this constant wrestling, the, 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 the moments where we mess up and we say, okay, God, I, I need your forgiveness again. In fact, Peter, just a few verses later in the same chapter says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, I know you're a Christian community. I know you're a church, but you know what? You're going to need to love one another because there's going to be some sins against each other that you're going to need to forgive. So we say, okay, well, that is not likely. And the, the, the grammatical structure of this sentence is tricky. As I was studying it this week, it was very interesting because it's unmistakable, un, unmistakably referring to, on the one hand, the suffering that was a definitive event, and then the, the doneness with sin, if you will, being a present continuous thing. So it's not a, well, I suffered, and then I was done with sin for a good two months, and then I was fine. Oh, well, then I sort of went back, and then I needed to suffer again. It's not that. The, the, the construct of this grammar is, I suffered, it was a definitive event, and then present continuous, you are done. You continue to be done. And the most plausible sort of angle or approach on this is, maybe Peter is referring to Jesus. Maybe he's talking about Jesus who suffered once in his body and is done 
with sin. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And certainly we know, okay, well that is true of Jesus. I went then to say, okay, let's look at the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, which tends to be more um, literal in some ways. Let's look at how this word, they word this verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same, and I love this, with the same intention. And then in parentheses here, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, so as to live the rest of your life the rest of your earthly life, no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. Now, read that way, we can apply that parenthetical statement, for he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, to refer, yes, to Christ, but also to the martyrs. Also to those who have said, look, we did it. We stayed true. We did not deny Christ. Yes, in the face of persecution. Yes, in the face of suffering. We stayed true, and we've suffered, and now we're done. It's over. It's, we're done. And so it says, okay, well, well, maybe we can make more sense of it that way, the Christ and the martyrs. But I think the other phrase that's kind of key is to arm yourself with the same intention. And saying that, okay, okay look, what if you prepared yourself to suffer that ultimate suffering, knowing that once you go through that, it's over. The wrestling match is over. You've endured. Like Revelation says, he who endures till the end will receive this crown. Maybe that's it. I find that it's difficult for us to talk about the kind of suffering that Peter was addressing and what the early Christians were facing because so much of it obviously had to do with actual persecution. And we're, we're, again, Daniel helped us with this when Daniel taught a couple of weeks ago, but the suffering that Peter's addressing here is not the kind of suffering that comes from, oh, it's a fallen world and I got a fever this week and that was really suffering, you know. The kind of suffering Peter's talking about is the kind that comes from persecution, the kind that results from living in opposition to this world, the kind that comes from saying, I've embraced Christ as my Lord, and so that means Caesar is not, that means the systems of this world are not what govern me, and so as a result of that, I'm facing some persecution, some opposition. And maybe what Peter is saying is, look, 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 arm yourself with the same intention. You see, there's Christ who suffered once and is done. And, and, and of course, for all of us. But then also, look, there's the martyrs who they have paid the price. They've come to the end of it. They suffered, they endured, and now they're done. And he's saying to, maybe he's saying to them, look, arm yourself with that same intention. Put yourself on that trajectory. Maybe we can say it that way. Put yourself on that trajectory that you're saying, okay, look, I am determined to embrace Christ as Lord and to follow Him knowing that this sort of trajectory may end in martyrdom, may end with me giving the ultimate price. But you know what? I'm armed with the same intention. And, and, if, and because I am, I'm not going to live anymore for the des- earthly desires, human desires, but now living for God. Does that make sense? That he's saying, look, if you say, here's this trajectory that, look, if you embrace it, if you say, yeah, look, I've made up my mind, this is where we're headed, knowing that he who has suffered is now done. I'm not done yet. But I'm putting myself on this trajectory and every little suffering is getting me closer. And every little bit of embracing of the cross and the disappointments and the, and the stuff that, that, that chips away at our selfishness, every little bits of those is just confirmation 
that I'm on the right trajectory. Does that make sense? That we are on that trajectory. And that's the trajectory that helps us to live the rest of our earthly lives no longer by human desires, but by the will of God. Now, Eugene Peterson in the message takes some other liberties, I guess, with this sort of broad feel in mind and translates the passage this way. Since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, learn to think like Him. Think that, okay, so how? How do you think like Him? Think of your sufferings as a weaning, I love this, as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Oh, ouch. I was more comfortable talking in vague terms about a trajectory of suffering that may end in martyrdom, but to tell me that this little, these little sufferings are a weaning from my old sinful habit of expecting to get my own way. Oh, Glenn. Eugene. <laughs> then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. Now, Peter... We can take comfort in this. Peter was not writing this as a guy who had this figured out from the beginning. He was not a guy who, said, who always lived for what the Lord wanted and never for what he wanted. There's a striking story of Peter that's familiar to us in Matthew 18. When Jesus is asking his disciples and he's saying to them, okay, hey, who do, you, who do others say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And this is familiar to us if you've grown up in church especially and Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I love this next phrase. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Jesus, we need to talk. Uh, I liked what you were saying about the Messiah bit. That was exciting to me because that's what we've all been hoping but this business about dying and being uh, given over, uh, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Now listen to this phrase. For you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of hum but merely human concerns. In other words, there was a time in Peter's life when he lived for human desires, not for God's. Let me unpack this, or, or try to unpack this a little bit for you. Because we, we know that story, it's so familiar to us, we kind of brush over it. But when Peter says to Jesus, I think you're the Messiah, he's stepping out on a major limb here. Because Isaiah, we've talked about this over and over again on Sunday nights, but Isaiah has this picture of Messiah as being what? As being the guy who will overthrow the oppressors, who will make it so that Israel no longer is living under the thumb of an evil ruler, that, that, that Israel's long history of being oppressed, first by Egyptians and then by the Babylonians, that their long history of living under the, the rule of, an, of a wicked person is over. 
that Messiah would come and say, you're done, evil Romans, you're done. I'm here. And Peter had this hope. And so when he says to Jesus, okay, who do you say that I am? And he says, all right, here we go. I think you're Messiah. He's saying, I think you're the one who's going to end this. I think you're the one who's going to deliver us from the oppression here. I think you're the one that's going to end our marginalized status. I think you're the one that's going to make everything go our way. But imagine how shocked they would have been when Jesus says, you're right, I am the Messiah. And by the way, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to crucify me and kill me. What? They knew that Isaiah spoke of a suffering servant, and by the time of Jesus' day, there were some rabbis that had the theory, maybe there were two messiahs, one that would be the, the ruling king one, and one that would be the suffering servant one. And maybe Peter had his heart set that Jesus was the ruling king one. And Jesus is saying, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but I'm I'm going to suffer. And I wonder if in that moment, all that Peter had hoped came crashing down. Have you ever had that moment where you followed Jesus because you thought life was going to turn around, you were going to get that job, your marriage was going to work, your kids were not going to be rebellious. You followed Jesus Because someone told you, if you did, things were going to get better. Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Someone told you that. And this is that moment for Peter where you say, whoa, whoa, I followed you on the hope that you are the Messiah, and now I've said it, and you said that that's true, and then now you're telling me you're going to suffer? See, maybe Peter denies knowing Jesus to that servant girl Maybe he denies Jesus not because he's full of cowardice. Maybe he denies Jesus because he's full of disappointment. We've often thought of Peter as being this guy, oh, he followed Jesus, and then when, he, when Jesus gets crucified, Peter says, whoa, whoa, I'm scared. Have we ever known Peter to be scared? I don't know. But maybe Peter doesn't deny knowing Jesus to the servant girl because he's so scared. Maybe he's disgusted. Maybe he's disillusioned. Maybe he's disappointed. Maybe he's saying, I don't even know him. I followed him thinking that the revolution was going to happen. I signed up for this because I thought he was going to bring this and I thought he was going to make our lives better and I thought he was going to end this oppressive taxation and I thought he was going to give us this and give us this and give us this and now look, he's being killed. And maybe Peter's saying, I don't know him, out of despair, out of disappointment. Have you been there? Have you been at that place where you say, you know what, I, I, I follow Jesus because, 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 because. And then you come to the place where you're saying, oh, whoa, 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 what happened here? Never, Lord. This must never happen. Whoa. And maybe when Peter's writing this letter as an older, more mature follower of Jesus, he's saying, you know what, Jesus told me That all I had in mind was human concerns. That I hadn't learned the concerns of God. I wonder tonight if we would say, you know what? There might be a part for all of us 
where we signed up to follow Jesus because of the things we thought would happen. And then all of a sudden, they didn't. What happens to you when you don't get your way? What happens to me when I don't get my way? We, honestly, you know, if we, even if we zoom into some little tiny bits of our life, snapshots of our life, ask yourself the question, you as a friend, when you get together with your group of friends, do you always get what you want? Do they always choose your restaurant or your, I mean, even small things, okay? Just, just work with me on this. You always choose your restaurant, your movie, your, you know. Is it always that? What happens to you when you don't? Find a new group of friends? You know, it's interesting. We're in the, um, the often ugly world of parents um, trying to unite against teachers at schools. Now, none of you do that. <laughs> but I realize that there's a lot of parents that are very zealous about getting petitions going and trying to get the school to change this and change that and do this and let's do that. And you get the feeling that a lot of these parents are sort of used to having their own way. And they're a bit shocked when a teacher or a school or a principal says, you know, you know how can I say this delicately? We've been doing this a lot longer than you. It, it, it's just, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's all throughout our day. There are these moments where we want our way. I want my way. I want it to happen. I, hey, well, wait a second. This would be more convenient for me. And how come you're not doing that? And you can have your coffee made your way. And if it isn't, you can sue them. I don't know. You know, yeah. How deep is this in us? How do you respond when a spouse doesn't go your way? How do you respond when your kids don't go your way? So you usually don't. Or, uh, I, I can speak from six and under. How do you respond? Does that flare? Does that send you into a... Obey your parents. And then all of a sudden the Bible becomes a means to get people to do what you want. Ooh, the Christian version of this is maybe the ugliest. Because there's Bible darts. You can say, well, I don't get my way. You're not doing it. Well, Ephesians says, Bible dart. We talked, you know, a month ago when we were in the Ephesians series about making requests, right? And saying, oh, look, it's, there's nothing wrong with making requests of one another. We're not supposed to sort of be this, well, I don't know, whatever you want. I don't have to get my way. I don't even have to say my way. Don't know why I'm talking like this. No, there's nothing wrong with making requests. Hey, would you mind doing this? Hey, what do you think about that? Or, hey, I'd appreciate this. No, that's fine. That, in fact, requests are kind of the way of the kingdom. It's how Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Look, ask. Ask. Based on the confidence of the relationship and all that, ask. That's fine. Re- making requests is how we live. But what happens when you make requests and it doesn't work out? Well, doggone it. I'm going to find another way to get my way. And maybe Peter is saying, look, all of this has to do with you getting what you want. And you know, maybe the most sinister, dark, hidden version of this 
is when God becomes a means to our ends. When God becomes a way to get what we want. I, 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 would, have, I would have never said that this was true of me or true in my life, but you know, four years ago, we had um, a scandal at this church. You know that. And it made us all stop and think about our lives and what we're doing. And, and for me, it made me sort of own up to something dark in my own heart that I expected that if I would be faithful and obedient, that God would make my future brighter and brighter and brighter. And this event didn't fit in with that. In fact, for a long while, the invitations for the Desperation Band, whom I traveled with at the time, to come and play and leave, the invitations sort of, woo, went quiet. And if people wanted to hear from us, they wanted to hear something salacious, which, of course, we wouldn't do. But you, you get this feeling. I had the feeling of like, wait, 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 wait. I thought, God, didn't we have a deal that I was going to be obedient and faithful and my best impression of humble and all of these things? And then won't you bless and won't you make it work out? And I had to own in that season of our lives, I had to own, Holly and I talked about this, we had to sort of own up to the fact that we were saying, had been saying subconsciously, God, if I follow you, will you give me what I want? Jesus, if I believe you're Messiah and I follow you, will you do all the Messiah stuff I want? What happens when the disappointment comes and God says, Yes, but not exactly the way you think. See, I want to be careful because I think there's a way of swinging to another extreme that says, hey, God does not care about your needs, so sit down and shut up. And, and sometimes the tone, I, I know, I, I, came from, I came from a um, charismatic university where once the former president of the university, thank God, former president of the university, said, said such Profound theological statements in a class as, you put a quarter in a Coke machine and you expect to get a Coke, so why do you treat God any differently? So I'm familiar with the kind of approach to God that says, God cares so much about me that everything's going to happen here and now. And maybe that charismatic theology of here and now is a reaction to another church theology that maybe is familiar to us that has told us for years, not here, not now. In other words, look, I know you're sick. I know you're suffering. I know it stinks right now. And God sort of cares, but he's got this heaven for you. And just hang on and you'll get out of here. In other words, not here and not now. And sometimes, maybe reacting to prosperity gospel and whatnot, We've got people that go even farther and that sort of say, he's God, you're not, be quiet, sit down. It's sort of a not here, not now, not ever. Sort of feel like, oh, well, I guess the Christian life is just about submission to a blind God who sort of cares but won't do it. It's actually closer to Islam, but we won't go there. Can I tell you what I think? 
the Bible presents for us is here as in earth. As in this earth, being reclaimed, renewed, springing up again because heaven has come down to it. Right? You've heard me talk about this numerous times. Revelation 21, and then I saw heaven descending down upon the earth, the temple coming down. The end of it all is not our escape, but of God's coming down. So the answer to the not here or is it here, it is here. And then what about the now? Is it now? Is it all now? It's now and not yet. But it's not quite right to just say not now. Because isn't there signs of the kingdom that's coming that's already begun to come? Isn't there something? Look, it's Peter that says in Acts 3, 19 through 21, it's Peter who says, the Messiah is waiting in heaven for the right time for the restoration of all things. In other words, when Peter, what Peter thought Jesus was going to do in Matthew 18 as Messiah, he's saying he will do, just not fully now. Does that make sense? The answer, the end of tonight's sermon is not for you to walk away with saying, well, I guess I just need to trust God and it's not here, not now, and not ever, and I don't know, but I'm not in control. Woo! Red Robin, anybody? We are going to go there. But the end of it is to say, no, look, this is a God who says yes here, and yes, some of it now, but yes, all of it to come. That this is a God who does care about the brokenness of our lives. So it's not entirely wrong to say, hey, is it wrong to say that I'm following Jesus because I believe in what he'll do? No, that's not right. We can't say that that's wrong. But there's a marvelous moment at the end of John's gospel that I think can help us with how to live. Toward the end of John's gospel, this is, this is after that moment that we talked about a few weeks ago when Peter's sort of restored to Jesus with Jesus' questions of the do you love me and And then Jesus says to him, very truly I tell you, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Here again is Jesus telling Peter, look, there's going to be a time in your life where you're not going to get what you want. (laughs) And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God and then he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. And this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? Verse 21. And when Peter saw him, he asked, but Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. The end of all of this for us tonight is to believe that God has a plan, that God is in control, that God will in the end make all things new again. But as for the details between here and then, what is that to you? You follow me. I think what's hard about this is you look at someone else and you say, well, it seems to be working out pretty good for them. And this is why I sometimes feel really uncomfortable at church conferences because a pastor will stand up and say, well, I did these things and look at my church. It's ginormous. (laughs) 
I, hesitate, I, I, I cringe because what if you're not that guy? Oh, wait, you're not that guy. And what if John's going to end up one way and Peter's going to end up a different way? Is it possible that two people could be following Jesus and have very different lives on earth? You bet it is. Is it possible that you could do your best to be earnest and a follower and, and, and persevere and endure and, you, and one family could have their kids perfect and adoring and quoting scripture as they're, you know, and the other could have kids that are struggling and do it with, is that possible? You bet it is. Is it possible that you could say, wait a second, we're following God and we're doing this, but I'm not seeing this work out and someone else says, well, I'm following God and boy, man, the blessings are just coming. Of course it's possible. But you know the end of this? Is Jesus saying to you, you follow me. To me, this was Jesus reclaiming that first moment when he said to Peter, follow me. To me, this is Jesus saying to Peter, 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 when you began to follow me, it was all about you following me. But what did it become about over time? How did it devolve into this thing of following me, but also hoping to get what you want? How did it devolve into a deal? How did it somehow degenerate into this thing of, I'm following you, but I really want this to work? And, Peter, and Jesus is maybe reclaiming this for Peter and saying, Peter, how did this begin? It began by me saying to you, Follow me. I wonder as we pray tonight, if all of us, as we think about this, could say, okay, maybe I'll embrace the little sufferings because it is confirmation that I'm on the right trajectory. Maybe I'll embrace even the little moments that maybe have nothing to do with persecution, but it's just the moments where I can't get my way with my kids, with my marriage, with my job, with my friends. Maybe I'll say, Lord, thank you that all of these moments are weanings from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get my way. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's a return to the place of seeing the face of the living Christ saying to us, follow me. Follow me. Trust that in the end I will restore all things. Trust that in the end I do care about the here and the now. But you follow me. Let's pray. God, all of us can think of very real places in our lives that we're keenly aware that we're out of control that something's beyond our scope. Help us to embrace those moments as a, a weaning, a, a, a trimming, a, a, a thing that's trying to set us on the right trajectory to live for you and not for ourselves, to trust you and not human concerns, to follow you. I pray for every person in here, for all of us, that you would purify our journey, refine our journey. We would follow Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.